Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is The Jim Rutt Show. I'm your host, Jim Rutt. Today's guest is Robin Hansen. Robin is an associate professor of economics at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. Welcome, Robin. Great to be here. Could you give us just a few words uh, about your uh, economics department at GMU and particularly how it might be different from other economics departments? Well, I'm a professor of economics here at George Mason, and our department is a little unusual. We're in some sense a weak alliance of contrarians, which has some interesting features because do contrarians really have an intrinsic alliance is a good question. We, we tend to be less focused on high method and more on a, you know, a range of interesting questions. And so we also tend to be more publicly engaged in having blogs and books that are widely read and that sort of thing. Well, that sounds uh, real good. And and certainly, you know, you and I have known each other at least a little bit for a few years and your range of interests is quite astounding. (laughs) Back when I was looking at your research interests, uh, I was going, oh my goodness, how are we going to cook this down to 90 minutes? I usually have to apologize for that, which I kind of still should. Although there's this recent book out called Range by David Epstein, which is celebrating those of us who uh, have excessively wide interests and backgrounds. Frankly, it fits me to a T. I have never done the same job for more than 18 months in my whole life, right? I'm a radical changer of focuses. And that says a lot more about someone like you or me than it does by a 20 year old. I think that's probably right. Anyway, let's hop in. Last night, my wife and I watched on Black Mirror uh, the episode, uh, Rachel, Jack, and Ashley, too. You recently tweeted about that, and I think you mentioned that they'd actually chatted with you a little bit about it, and uh, you weren't entirely happy with uh, the result. Uh, I've had no contact with Black Mirror uh, people at all. <laughs> so as okay. far as I know, they, they I have no indication they are aware of me at all or any of my writings on the subject. Okay. So I have this book called The Age of M., which is a serious attempt to analyze what happens when you do brain emulations. And about a third of the Black Mirror episodes have included brain emulations, which I think is, you know, saying that the concept is potent and interesting. But when they use brain emulations in their stories, they don't do it at all in a realistic way. (laughs) That is, brain emulations would radically change most everything. It would be this enormous disruption of society on the scale of, say, the Industrial Revolution or even the Farming Revolution. But they usually have an emulation there just for one little thing. (laughs) That is, the world is mostly familiar, except one thing is different because there's an M. And that's just doesn't make much sense. So in that particular episode, there's a singer. And in order to get more fans engaged with her, they make a brain emulation of her that they sell to her fans. And you as a fan can talk to an emulation of the singer and chat with it. And it can help you, you know, do your hair and your clothing and, you know, be friends, which if emulations were possible, isn't a crazy thing to do. It's just crazy to have a world where that's the only thing they do. Because basically, M's could replace everybody on all the jobs. Uh, once M's are cheap enough to do that, well, they're cheap enough to do everything. Yep. I uh, read The Age of M when it came out and was quite taken with it. And when you agreed to be a guest, I went back and uh, reviewed it. Went through at a high speed, but reminded myself of a number of interesting things. And I must say, as someone who's known a number of futurists and have read a number of futurist uh, scenarios, it is probably the 
richest, most integrated futurist scenario uh, I've ever seen. And as uh, you know, Robin indicated, his assumptions at the broadest level is that we develop this technology to upload a human into to upload humans and turn them into robots, essentially. And it very quickly becomes the basis of our whole civilization. Maybe you could speak uh, relatively briefly about the various things that, that are big that are happening that you see after this. Sure. Now, I like to say that it's like science fiction, except there's no plot and there's no characters and it all makes sense. (laughs) A lot of people have told me over the years, a lot of technology people especially, that while it's possible to envision future technologies, it's just not possible to see their social consequences. And if you read a fair number of futurists, you might tend to agree with that because futurists often seem to have pretty vague and insubstantial forecasts. So I wanted to show in this book that you really could say a lot about a concrete scenario if you worked it out carefully. This scenario is where you can scan an individual human brain and make a computer model of that and run that on a computer. And that model has the same input-output behavior. That is, it acts the same in the same situation. You could hook it up with artificial eyes, ears, hands, and mouth, and then it could talk back to you. You could do jobs, uh, et cetera. So once you have emulations and they're cheap, then they are cheaper than human workers and they can do pretty much anything a human can do because they are emulations of humans. And so, first of all, all the humans lose their jobs and the M's take the jobs, but a lot more things happen. So the M's can be made in factories as fast as you can crank them out, which is very different from the human population. So the population of M's can explode and the population gets so large that it drives down wages to near subsistence levels, which is the level at which human wages have typically been in most of human history. And for most animals in history, that's also the kind of life they live. And so M's have to work most of the time. Uh, in a very competitive economy. But because the number of M's can grow so fast, the economy can grow much faster. The ability to grow humans is a a big limit on the current growth rate of the economy. So I estimate roughly that this new M economy could double roughly every month rather than the doubling every 15 years we have at the moment. These M's, uh, two big features of them uh, is they can make copies of themselves and they can change their speeds. So uh, since they're running on a computer, if you and they're a very parallel process, if you give them more processors, they can run that process faster. So subjectively, they can run faster or slower than human speed if you pay more to go faster. And so my best estimate is they run roughly a thousand times human speed, the typical M does. That's a speed at which in the one month doubling time of the economy, they experience a subjective century. And roughly after that point, they need to retire because their minds will become too fragile to be competitive with younger workers. And because uh, it's easy to make copies of M's, then most M's are copies of the few hundred most productive humans. So even though there might be 10 billion humans available to be scanned to become emulations and compete in the M world, the M world really wants the few best because it can make as many copies as it wants of the few best. Very, very interesting. And within the constraint of your assumption, I was amazed at the detail you went into. You talked about politics, you talked about sex, you talked about religion, you talked about the architecture of the cities. You even went into an amazingly detailed argument about the subjective experience of gravity based on the size of the robot. So as I was, I said uh, when I introduced it, if someone's interested in a, an amazingly integrated, cross-checked scenario based on a one key assumption. Uh, This is a great book to read. However, I will say that personally, I'm skeptical of the core assumption, uh, which is that emulations will be the uh, first AGI. Let me give you a couple arguments and then love to hear hear what you have to say. Let's get into it. Uh, Yeah, let's do it. First, you know, your ballpark estimate for 
M's was about 100 years. And you laid out, I thought, some reasonably uh, good analysis on why that was not unreasonable. I guess I would say my estimate is shorter than that for other approaches, but I'll confess my methodology is more seat of the pants and less analytic than yours. But if I had to put a flag down, I'd say 20 to 80 years with a somewhat skewed mean of 50. And if we got there in 50 before your M's got there in 100, I think there would be uh, no point in doing M's or very little. And here's why. M's aren't very good, right? They're only a bit better than humans. And one of the things I like to say about humans, and I used to just say it because it sounded good, which is humans are to the first order, the stupidest possible general intelligence, right? Ma nature is seldom profligate in evolution and only does what she needs to do to get an advantage or species does. Of course, this is all teleological talk, which we know is not true, but nonetheless, you get the point that humans aren't that smart. Well, in the last five years, I spent a good amount of my time on cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience. And now I know humans aren't that smart. You know, for instance, the, you know, one of the more obvious ones is so-called working memory size, the seven plus or minus two that allows us to relatively easily remember phone numbers. Turns out that's basically for audio information and writing is actually processed in our audio system. We actually have a, another set of short-term, very short-term memories uh, for images, and there's even less there, three or four. And it turns out those two constraints have, I would argue, giant impact on our cognitive ability, uh, particularly around the ability to process language and even to read. We can just barely read. We're constantly shuffling things in and out of our short-term memory. And when you actually test people on their reading comprehension, uh, it's pretty bad. When one thinks about what would a uh, ability to read be even just our plain uh, human languages for an entity that had a working memory size of a hundred. And it's just staggering. You know, keep in mind, you know, the seven is an average. The village idiot has five. Einstein has nine plus or minus, right? Approximately. So a hundred is just like qualitatively beyond anything we've ever been able to see before. And the ability to see linkages between works, uh, with linkages between ideas, I think would be huge. Uh, some of our other cognitive uh, limitations are memory fidelity, right? Our memories are famously bad, and it's getting scary how strong the evidence is on how bad first-person testimony is in court cases. And memories uh, get commingled, they erode with age, etc. Uh, another, when we're doing higher level thinking, call it Kahneman's System 2 type thinking and are processing it through our conscious framework, uh, we're almost perfectly single threaded. We can pay attention to exactly one thing at a time. And not at all clear to me that you'd build that into a, a software AI. Uh, another is our vision. Uh, you know, we know our vision is very synthesized. What we're really seeing is a very small spot that moves around, jumps around very rapidly and our brain somehow, by means we don't yet know, synthesizes something that seems like the full frame, but it's missing things all the time. Uh, and those are just a few. So my argument would be that if uh, software approach AIs get there before the M's, even from a very early stage, they'll be better and they'll take off faster. Uh, secondly, for 
the question of how to get there. It strikes me that software approaches or software hardware approaches fit in better with our financial and business ecosystems. I would assert, love to hear your thoughts on this one, that M's are mostly all or nothing. Yes, we might be able to hack out the perceptual system, but we're already doing pretty good with deep learning on perception. But to get a you know full bore M, we have to figure out how to do it for a full bore human and not lose much. All or nothings are famously hard to finance. And in my, with my hat as a early stage uh, investor, I often say, uh, I don't generally bet on jumping up a cliff while software approaches are much more uh, potentially incremental. For instance, if we were to crack one of the biggest problems I see that's, uh, you know, with insight, uh, which is language comprehension, just language comprehension itself with a bigger working memory size would be unbelievably valuable, right? In all kinds of ways from understanding research reports and looking for integrations, perhaps most valuably to, you know, writing novels, writing screenplays, writing textbooks, etc. And so there'll be lots of money and lots of organizations focused on these early wins on this uh, a more ramped approach rather than the all or nothing approach. And the last one, and I look very carefully actually when I was flipping through uh, the book on this last one, is uh, that humans only communicate with our pretty crappy languages and M's look like they would also mostly communicate with human languages. You do have about two paragraphs on M's possibly being able to exchange higher level data structures, but that really wasn't filled out at all. On the other hand, some of the AI projects, including one I'm, uh, I've been associated with on and off called OpenCog, from the very beginning, expects there to be uh, very large and complex knowledge structures that could be shared between AIs so we could have much higher bandwidth between our AGI uh, elements that uses you know, highly connected graphs of probabilistic logic expressions, which are a tiny amount of data, actually, and, uh, and hence have a high information density. And they're explicitly understandable. So anyway, those are my set of arguments. I think you've given us a lot to talk about here. <laughs> I'm not sure we're going to get to anything else, but it'll be fun if we even just go through these. Absolutely. All right. So uh, there's this, a number of separate questions here. One issue is how far can other things get before M show up? And the separate issue is when both of them are around, which wins the competition or which wins where? Uh, and those are somewhat separate issues that are related. With respect to the first question, uh, a key issue is just how hard is AGI and how hard are emulations? So if you think as many people do that there's some, you know, essential five line theory and once you find that theory, then you've got it and you can do basically everything relatively easy, then you're just wondering when we're going to find that theory. But if you think of, you know, AGI is just a name for a huge pool of tools and a huge pile of capabilities that the only way to achieve it is to slowly add to the pile. Then the question is, well, how big is the pile? And how fast are we going? So I tend to be skeptical about the one big revolution that's going to change everything. We, we really haven't seen that in the last 70 years, say, of computer progress. Computer progress has been lumpy sometimes, but the degree of lumpiness in computer progress is comparable to other fields. And in fact, we see a relatively universal pattern of the lumpiness of research in terms of citations, actually. And so I would say that this straightforward prediction for the future is a continued rate of progress at the rate we've seen over the last 70 years. And uh, at that rate, it should take a really long time. <laughs> so 50 years would be pretty ambitious. 
Yeah, I think you said 400 was uh, kind of the center of your guess. Do you still feel comfortable that? Uh, I would say one statistic I, I, I use is, is that I'd ask people in the last 20 years, how far have we come in your subfield of AI as a percentage of how far we need to go to get to human level abilities? And, and the median response I got was about five to 10% with no noticeable acceleration. So if you project that forward, you've got two to four centuries. Gotcha. Okay. In principle, if M's took longer than that, then that's how far you get. But still, the question is, I agree that M's are all or nothing and therefore less likely to produce a, a burst of investment to try to produce it. Um, of course, AGI really isn't going to produce a burst of investment to produce AGI. It's mostly going to be investment along the path of particular products and services that'll be useful well before AGI. And similarly for M, most of the work is going to be on the technology that will eventually lead to M's, but not because it will lead to M's. It'll be for other purposes. Although it's worth noting that many people, especially in science fiction, focus on the benefit of M's as immortality. And the benefit of M's from that point of view as a product is you could become an emulation and then you'd be immortal. You know, I think that's actually an interesting argument, which one I probably haven't considered enough. Uh, and we know humans are vain. And we also know how much of human history has been driven by, uh, in my view, false promises of immortality in the afterlife. Uh, so it is it is possible. I will acknowledge that that's actually a good uh, response with respect to in, uh, the investment ecosystem, that if they get close enough, then there might be a spur of investment around the immortality marketplace. Right. So at this high level, my two kinds of arguments would be to say, look, AGI is just really hard. And so it's just going to take a long time where there isn't going to be this moment where we suddenly figure it out and then it's all done. Uh, it's just a long slog. M's are also in some sense a long slog, but in some sense, M's are more just scaling up things we kind of know how to do. Uh, it's less fundamental new understandings you need for M's than just increasing scale. So you have to have bigger scale scans, you have to have bigger, cheaper computers, and you have to have more brain cell models. Yeah, one, uh, actually one item I, when I was pondering this, and I think you addressed it in passing, I don't know how much detail, but a little bit, is uh, one of the questions about how doable M is, is at what level the details matter. Right. Yeah. If the details matter at uh, neuron types plus uh, synapses plus synapse size plus connectome, then it's at one level of difficulty. If it also includes details of the epigenetics of each neuron, uh, if it also includes state information within the synapses, et cetera, uh, it might be a very much bigger and more difficult problem. We believe that it's not the worst possible case because uh, the brain is a signal processing system. And in general, signal processing system design produces designs where there are some degrees of freedom that represent and, and move the signals. And then there are other degrees of freedom that don't. And then you usually try to go out of your way to have some degree of separation between those degrees of freedom. That is, you know, the wire is an electronic device. The wire itself conducts the message. And then the insulator keeps that somewhat independent of other degrees of freedom. And that's, in general, how you do a signal processing system. And so the brain is such a system. So the brain must, at some level, have been designed to have some key degrees of freedom that represent the signals and other degrees of freedom, i.e. all the other infrastructure of the cells, to be somewhat uh, separated from that which makes you think that you have to find the degrees of freedom that matter, which isn't going to be everything, but it could be a lot. 
Yeah, could be. Though my nature, uh, unfortunately, is not an engineer. You know, she's an evolution machine and, and as we know, does all kinds of crazy, weird things that are highly dependent upon each other between levels and things. Uh, so I would expect us to find some degree of separation there. If you look at the organization of the body, say just organs themselves also follow this principle <laughs> that, you know, there are different subsystems inside an organism and those different subsystems have different purposes. And in order to best design each subsystem, usually you try to make the subsystems be somewhat independent of other subsystems, and they roughly are. Indeed, roughly. But if you change small things in uh, the metabolome, metabolistic graph, it all fails, right? So there's a lot more cross-linkage than a decent engineer would do, but I take your point. There's certainly some. Uh, How about the third point that uh, suppose the two arrive at similar times? Uh, Let's talk about the competition a little bit. Right. So imagine that M's come when AI hasn't taken over everything. AI isn't better at everything. Uh, and so then the key question is now they can compete on equal terms in terms of hardware and investment and, and capitalist attention. And it's more now the question of which kind of architecture is better suited for which kind of problems. And so this comes to your architectural criticisms. You know, you could say, well, look, our architectures aren't perfect. They are, have flaws, uh, but then you can start to improve them. So obviously humans have improved their working memory, say, by, you know, having external memory records, videos, audio recordings, things like that. Uh, and of course, that's also a more accurate memory. So the real question is these different architectural systems and approaches, which have the advantages of flexibility or evolvability or changeability and what other advantages do they have so that some win somewhere and some six another. So as long as M's win in some substantial fraction of job tasks, they don't have to win everywhere. Then something like the age of M happens. That is in the jobs where the M's are best, then the age of M to scenario happens in those job tasks. And then there's a whole other world of tasks that are done by other kinds of automation. And the age of M isn't talking so much about that, but you should imagine it that this implicit huge background of hardware and software that's doing other tasks would exist in that world and wouldn't change that world enormously. The description would be roughly the same. So it comes down to then, and as many people think that in fact, M sort of brain organization kind of software just loses at everything. And that's the argument that many people have said. It's just so hopeless. And that's, that's an argument that combines two claims. One is that brain organization as an, as an approach to software is just hopeless and there's just no good way to improve it or modify it to be competitive with a claim that it's very hard to modify, uh, that it's, it's stuck. Whereas other kinds of software is more robust to modification, easier to improve, easier to uh, generalize. Yeah, I think that's I in general would support that argument, though. I just thought of something that actually may support your side a little bit, uh, which is another area there is uh, increasing investment in is in uh, neural man machine interfaces. Yeah, I'm pretty skeptical about that mattering much here. (laughs) Okay, each task will be done in some kind of hardware in a brain hardware or in artificial hardware. The neural interface basically increases the bandwidth between tasks being done in different places. So it allows more fine grain interleaving, but it doesn't really save the M's unless there's something, a task that the M's are best at. So there has to be something they're best at. And then you can you know, integrate that more at a fine grain time and space scale with tasks done on artificial hardware, the higher the bandwidth you have between that. 
Well, let me throw a real world example uh, on where a loosely coupled man machine interface uh, beats machine, and that's chess, right? We all hear about how good the chess programs are these days, and they are amazing. Uh, but I have also read that there are tournaments now where you take a very good grandmaster, doesn't even have to be the best, but a very good one, uh, with a uh, state of the art chess playing program designed to be guided by a human. And the combination of the two is considerably stronger than the best pure computer chess programs. That's what I heard 10 years ago. I understand today that's no longer true. Ah, too bad. (laughs) Today, the machines are just beating the human machine teams. Yeah, truthfully, I had not heard whether, for instance, the uh, man-machine teams could beat uh, Alpha Chess Zero or something, right? Interestingly, that actually argues towards how rapidly, you know, regular software evolves versus anything else. Anyway, this has been a good conversation. Well, I have another point I want to make on this. Okay, go ahead. I, I have a theory I tried, an account I tried to come up with, with the essential difference between the software we usually write, including a lot of machine learning software, and the software in our brains. Uh, I think you need an account of the fundamental source of that difference in order to make an intelligent estimate about which wins where in a longer competition. So I propose that the key difference is that in the eons that evolution was evolving and improving the brain, it never found some key abstractions that we have in software that we build our computers around. Uh, In particular, it mixes up hardware and software. Uh, It mixes up processing and memory. It mixes up addresses and content. It mixes learning and doing. All these things that we usually in software try to go out of our way to separate, to distinguish, the brain doesn't. It seems to basically mix them all up. So in its search for improvements, it was searching for variations that were constrained to mix these things up. And that first distinction between hardware and software is perhaps the most important. So today, when you sit down in front of a computer to write software, You have limited processing, but you have unlimited memory, basically. Uh, And that means that you can start with a blank screen and start to write a new piece of code and then only connect this new piece of code to the old code you have when you see an advantage from that. But you're you're usually slow to do that and and cautious about that because you know the more you connect to old stuff, the harder it will be to change and update. That's the standard issue of modularity. So we use modularity as an enormous power to write software. And we also do this in machine learning because we can, because we have so much extra memory that that's cheap and easy. But the brain couldn't do that. That's the key point. Over the eons, when the brain had an existing brain design and then it was evolving and trying to add a new functionality or feature or capability it couldn't start with a blank screen uh, because hardware and software is mixed up. It would have to add a new section to the brain to do that. And the brain was pretty volume constrained. And so it would either have to delete some old section in order to add a new section, or it would find a way to reorganize old things to allow the new thing to fit in more easily. So it would focus a lot on reorganization and especially abstraction which is the key way that you can take multiple things and make a smaller, shorter version of them that allows more room to doing other things. So the key idea here is that relative to software we're familiar with, the brain is this marvel of integration and abstraction, but it isn't very modular. You know, that's obvious when you look at the wiring diagram. (laughs) And the software we write is much more modular. Therefore, we don't pay as much of attention there to organization, reorganization, and abstraction because it's not worth the bother when we can so easily just start with a new blank screen. 
But that because we have the standard habit in software, software rots faster than brain software. And this is the overwhelming observation of software in the real world is that even though we have decades of people writing software to do so many things, typically a software system rots with time. It becomes harder to modify, harder to usefully change, harder to understand. And eventually people just toss it (laughs) and they start with a new blank screen and make whole new systems at enormous expense. But we apparently haven't found ways to inherit most old code that does similar things. Instead, we mostly throw it away and start with something new because our systems rot. So that gives you a perspective on the advantages and disadvantages of M's relative to other software, suggesting that on small... So you know, one big disadvantage of the brain is in order to have the brain do anything, you pretty much have to devote a whole brain to the task. The brain is a big thing. It's expensive. And so most of the advantages we've gotten from software over the last 70 years are mainly to do small things, which much less software and hardware than the whole brain, uh, which is an enormous savings. And we should expect that to continue. So for tasks that can be done by a small piece of hardware and a small piece of software, that will just not be done by an M or a human like mine. But as you move up the hierarchy of, of tasks to more general tasks that require wider scope and more things to be integrated, In our experience, we actually find it hard. That's the problem of AGI generality. We find it quite hard to make systems that are general and broad and that can integrate a wide range of things well and still be modifiable and easily updated. And that's usually the limitation. And that's where human minds seems to excel. Human minds seem to these this marble of integration where uh, they can pay attention to a wide range of things and integrate them well and not rot. And so that suggests this future where there's, you know, like in a company, an abstraction hierarchy of of control. And there's people at the top who have very wide scope and attention who look at, you know, long term things and people at the bottom who look at very small scope and very short term uh, local considerations. And those local considerations will obviously be done by automation. And that will be the first thing to automate. But near the top of the control hierarchy, those things seem much more naturally to be done by humans or human like minds. And I would predict that M's have a long future there. So even against software AGIs, which may have a much higher high end than M's, you think there will still be a a place for M's in their uh, unique ability to do very broad integration and abstraction? Yeah. So, you know, for an economist, the question is not how smart is a thing. It's sort of how cost effective is a thing. (laughs) Right. So, um, you know, in some sense, if you put 100 people together, they're smarter than one one person. And they're more capable, but they cost 100 times as much. You know, so when you say AGI could be smarter, well, I say, well, smarter than how many humans? And at what cost, right? Right, et cetera. And so when we're thinking about this cost trade-off, then I say near the high end of the you know, generality, uh, flexibility, range of considerations, spectrum of, of tasks, that it looks to me like the M's can win there for a long time. Especially considering that once M's are possible, we can modify that software. It doesn't have to stay the way it initially did. So then, then the question becomes, how fast can that improve relative to how fast can other things improve? And you'd say, well, look, we've been able to improve other things much faster. But I'd say, well, yes, but that's on very narrow tasks, very narrow scopes. You haven't really pressed into the hard problem of how to be general and broad. Yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, how rigid will they have to be or how opaque is the other question? Uh, And it is true that the deep learning neural models are almost as opaque as the human brain, right? Indeed. And they are much more modular than people give them credit for in the sense that anyone, say, neural net, say, that does chess is this big opaque mess that does everything in chess at once, but it only does chess. (laughs) 
you know, in the deep learning world, people solve new problems with a blank slate. Basically, they start with a blank net and they, you know, learn a particular area with a particular data set. They are not making systems that do everything all at once. Yeah, it's actually, by the way, why I do not believe that the current deep uh, learning neural net architecture is likely by itself to get us to AGI. Uh, I know there are a lot of people out there these days who do, but frankly, I think it's uh, like going into an orchard where everybody was picking fruit from the ground with a six foot ladder. And now you can pick a lot of fruit, but eventually you've picked it all, all you can get with the six foot ladder. And we're going to need other approaches that integrate probably multiple neural nets and have the ability to generate new neural nets on the fly uh, under the control of a higher level abstraction, perhaps uh, a more symbolic, more probabilistic system. And then we'll have a highly complicated you know, system that will probably by the time it gets to have the capability of human brain will probably be almost as complicated. But the question will be, to what degree is it modular and can it out evolve? Because in, like in the business world where I come from, ev- the rate of evolution is pretty much everything over the long hall. If you can make your product better, then your doubling time is in values three years and the other guy's five years before long you've, you've eaten his lunch. The same would be true in a race between uh, software-driven AGI versus M's. If uh, we can improve our software-driven human level, say equal to M's faster, then the dominance of M's could be pretty short. And, and the key point to notice is that until we have M's, the human stuff isn't improving very fast at all. So it's definitely been the observation over the last decades that, you know, human workers are not improving as fast as artificial software. We, we almost never see something that was being done by software being switched to being done by humans, whereas we see a lot of cases where something that was being done by humans is switched to being done by artificial hardware and software. So if that trend were to continue, then it's just obvious that the humans lose. When M's are possible, that game changes because now the human minds who are now M's can take advantage of the improvements in hardware. They can take advantage of scale economies in you know, factories, et cetera, to make many of them and make them more cost effective. And they can even take advantage of their brains being modified by efforts to reorganize them and redesign them and to improve them. And that is, of course, interesting that there's no reason you couldn't spend up 10 million M's to work on the problem of improving M's. So it's, again, a, the singularity foom type argument, though probably slower. But, but the key robust prediction is the growth rate goes up. <laughs> Regardless of whether it's AGI or M's, the rate of change in the economy becomes much faster. And that if it wasn't for M's, then we would much more despair of humans being able to keep track and keep control over all that change. Whereas when M's are possible, then they can be very fast and they can keep up with change. Yeah, I think that's a very good optimistic point about the M world is it's probably less scary than the pure software AGI world. We'll be able to reason about it from analogy to ourself, uh, at least in the initial phases, and probably it wouldn't accelerate as fast. Subjectively, in the sense that from the point of view of the fastest M's, the world wouldn't be changing as fast because they could speed up with it. Yes. Well, and also from the human perspective, not as fast as an a- if indeed fast takeoff AGI is real, which uh, again, another long point to argue and I'm unclear on my view on that even, but there are certainly, as you know, scenarios where software AGIs uh, reflect upon themselves and uh, you know, the 1.1 human AGI becomes 1.4 human, becomes two human, becomes nine human, becomes a million human in you know, six hours. I actually spent several years arguing that point with my ex-co-blogger, Eliad Yudkowsky. And so I feel somewhat confident in saying the key assumption behind that is some level of simplicity in the essential innovations that would be 
possible. That is there at some level, there are some simple ideas that when you find them, they give you these big improvements and maybe let you find other simple ideas that basically there is these big lumps of innovation to be found. So to the extent that innovation typically isn't that lumpy, then I'm much more skeptical about that uh, because the, the past we've seen a distribution of lumpiness, but most innovation has been relatively small lumps, a few big ones. And because of that, we've seen relatively steady progress. And I think that allows us to predict those kinds of rates of progress forward. I love the quality of your analysis. It's just so deep. And again, I recommend uh, The Age of M to anybody who wants to see a beautifully constructed scenario about something quite far into the future uh, that if you accept the one premise makes a lot of sense. Now, many people are scared by it. I mean, and in some sense, rightly so. That is, if you thought of the history of, say, from animals to foraging humans to farming humans to industrial humans, each of those transitions was enormous. <laughs> And each of those transitions to somebody before the transition should have been scary if they had understood the basics of it, because a lot would change in their world. And some things would be lost. Some things they value were lost in each of those transitions. And so you should expect the same thing of the next transition. Enormous change in most aspects of society. And therefore, some key things you treasure will be lost. And that's not crazy. Uh, that's completely reasonable. But then that's pretty much what you should expect in the long run future. If you say, I like the world I'm in and I don't want any more big changes, you've got a really big <laughs> problem in front of you because so far we've had big changes and how are you going to prevent them? And that accelerating rate. I mean, that's been the trend since, you know, the modern age started in 1625 on February 16th at 11 p.m., right? It's been accelerating ever since and at a pretty high rate. Actually, I would say we have seen acceleration over time, but in lumps. So Within each of these eras, say the animal era, the foraging era, the farming era, the industrial era, change has been relatively steady. It has not been accelerating overall. So even, say, over the last century, I would say change has not been accelerating over the last century if you look at overall rates of change. But, of course, change today versus a 1,000 years ago is much higher because of the Industrial Revolution. And then during the farming era, from, say, 5,000 BC until a few hundred years ago, change was relatively steady at a much lower rate. Uh, but it was faster than 100,000 years ago uh, because the farming, the foraging era was an even slower. So I'd say roughly we see steady rates of change until we see a small number of these very big increases in the rates of change. And AI or M's could very well be the sort of thing that triggers a big burst in the rate of change. Oh, that's interesting. Let's, let's divert here a little bit and talk about uh, the idea that rates of change are not accelerating because I would say the common pop view is that they are not to say that that is correct. And I suppose I'd also want to know what's your metric and are we talking first derivatives or second derivatives that are uh, or velocities that are stationary? So, so the key point, obviously, is that you know, our society is enormous. There's lots of different parts. And at any one time, some parts are changing faster than others. So it's always possible to look and find parts that are changing very rapidly. But are they representative? And so our best way to look at overall society, averaging over all the different kinds of changes, is economic measures. Because they basically average out how much more can you get of what you want. So economic growth basically is the ability of us all to get more of what we want. And uh, when growth happens, it's because we can do more. And that's average over all the different things we want. And so some things we want improve much faster and other things slower. And the way we average those is how important is each one from the point of view of getting what we want. 
And so economic growth has been relatively steady. In fact, economic growth has arguably declined a bit in the advanced countries over the last, you know, 40 years. Uh, and that's called stagnation or decline. And then people have talked about that, although worldwide, because the poorer nations are growing faster, worldwide growth isn't slowed down, but it's not sped up either. And that's in terms of essentially productivity, I presume. Productivity is producing the things we want. So it's basically the ability to get more of what we want has gone up. Yeah, and per capita, like I said, just have to adjust by population size to get a real sense of advancement. In some sense, more population is one of the things we want. <laughs> so you shouldn't neglect that either. So if we choose to have more population who get less, that's still getting more. If what we wanted was to have more population to get less. But the, the long-term trend, I would say, is more largely in terms of the total productivity product the economist said of per capita. So through most of the foraging world, through most of the farming world, per capita wealth did not change much. The most of change was in the total number of people, which is what you know standard theory predicts. That is, if we can grow people faster than the economy grows, we will. And so then most growth will be eaten up by population change as opposed to per capita income change. And it's only in the last few hundred years where we've been able to grow the economy faster than the population such that now the per capita rate has gone up. And gone up a lot in you know, the last 400 years, something like that. Okay, well, this is great. Uh, I really think this is a very, very interesting conversation. Let's move on to our next topic, uh, which seems to be becoming a semi-feature here on the Jim Rutt Show, uh, which is the Fermi Paradox. For those listeners who aren't familiar with us, this goes back to Los Alamos, uh, where they made the atomic bomb during World War II, uh, where the story is told that a group of very smart folks were sitting around a lunch table talking about uh, how many intelligent races there were in the universe. And they all, it must be a bunch because we have these many stars, these many galaxies. I must make some assumptions about planets, etc. And uh, Enrico Fermi walked over and said, OK, guys, uh, that all sounds good. But where are they? Right. So where are these other intelligences in space? And so far, we've been looking for 60 years or so and have seen no confirmed signals for anything that we would say is the sign of either an existing or previous uh, intelligent race in the universe other than ourselves. Uh, and in general, the argument falls into two categories. One, that there aren't any, that for whatever reason, uh, we're the only, the first race, at least in the universe, to have reached the level of general intelligence. And then the other fork is they're out there, but they either are intentionally not showing themselves or we don't have the tools to detect them. And so with that, I'm going to throw it back to you, Robin, and tell me what you think about the Fermi paradox. So this is a really big question and it's an important question. And when I first started writing about it 20 years ago, I thought neglected. And in many areas, what I'd often do is take the data we have and try to be a little more careful theoretically to ask, what does this data predict? Or what are the implications of this data? What can we infer from this data? And so on this cosmic scale, the key data point is we don't see anything out there that isn't dead. <laughs> Everything we've ever seen anywhere on except on Earth is dead. And so the question is how to explain that. And so now we have to confront that to some sort of theories. And one of the theories we have to compare that to is our own theory of our own origin. So we're not dead. Where did we come from? And so we have a story, a set of stories that try to explain where we came from. 
And they have to do with the path that we came along, our ancestors came along, the very first kinds of life appeared, then new kinds of life appeared, more advanced kinds of life, eventually humans, eventually humans grew to this level. And that theory of our past is a set of theories that mostly explains improvement through some sort of evolutionary or competition, which is the sort of theory that predicts increasing capabilities and increasing range and scope of environments. And when you apply those sorts of theories to creatures like us at this stage, we tend to predict more of the same. (laughs) That is the most straightforward prediction of our future is that we will continue to become more technically capable, that our economy will continue to grow and that we will therefore be able to survive in a wider range of environments. We will take a wider range of energy sources. We will use a larger set of material and therefore we will continue to grow. And the straightforward projection many people see is that that means we take over a larger section of the solar system and eventually take over larger sections of the galaxy, etc. And those sorts of straightforward predictions of our future run into the conflict that if other places out there would follow that same sort of trajectory, they would eventually be visible and we would see them, but we don't. Yep. That's the essence of the paradox, right? So then the key question is, well, how do we interpret all this? So the way I've tried to interpret it under the phrase, the great filter is to say, we can see this theory of a trajectory of going through these various steps as a theory of a path you go along, but these paths can have filters along the way. That is, we can imagine that at some point, a process that goes along this path doesn't continue, it stops. So for example, we can imagine, say, humans blowing themselves up and doing it so thoroughly that we prevent the rise of something like us a few thousands of years later. It's actually pretty hard to do that. We, we An ordinary nuclear war doesn't quite do it. <laughs> but uh, the point is you can imagine something that's thorough enough to keep it from going on. Or you can imagine, say, that evolution would have searched for billions of years in the space of possible species, but never come up with a species quite like humans with with our combination of intelligence and tool abilities and things like that. And so if we think of this path, but it's not guaranteed that the system goes along to the next step in the path, then we can think of this path as a process with filters. And then each step has a filter, which is what's the chance that it goes on to the next step. And then we can think of the great filter as the sum of all those filters up to the point where something would be visible on the cosmic scale. And then the claim is, well, there is a great filter. (laughs) We look out in the universe and clearly nothing (laughs) has become really big and visible. And so that means starting from any random spot, it's really hard to go along that path to get to that endpoint. It's enormously hard. It's astronomically hard, literally. So if we can see, say, 10 to the 22 planets roughly out there and none of them are visible, produced a visible civilization, then the total filter is more than a factor of 10 to the 22. And that's a puzzle. (laughs) You know, I like the filter metaphor. You can take the hundreds of arguments about the paradox and put them into the probably in terms of early filter versus late filter also. Absolutely. So this, this is the key point from our point of view is we realize, well, we're only partly along this filter. We're not actually at the moment capable of being visible at a cosmic scale, although we envision that in the future we would become that. So there's a filter ahead of us and a filter behind us. And the biggest question for us is how far along the filter have we come? And you know, the key point is if it's 10 to the 22 and say we're 10 to the 20 along the way, but we still have 10 to the two to go, that means we only have a 1% chance of reaching that final point, which is bad news. <laughs> it means most likely we failed. 
and we fail pretty thoroughly in the sense that you can imagine various disasters, but if they only temporarily knock some parts of us down, but not all of us thoroughly down, then it wouldn't take that long for those parts to regrow and regroup and, and continue on. So that means if there's only a 1% chance of getting there, there's a 99% chance of something in our future so thoroughly knocking us down that we can't get back up again. Yep, that's a very interesting way to look at it. Of course, it, it does ignore uh, one of the branches of the arguments on the late filters, which is that there are societies out there, but either live in a way that are not detectable to us. For instance, they don't use broadcast forms of electromagnetism. They may use lasers or th- something for long range communication or uh, some of the other late filter arguments are that they turned inward and chose for whatever reason to not go out into the world and maybe have built very powerful uh, social inhibitions against it, or the singularity always happens and we're always eaten by our AIs. And eaten by AI doesn't work in the sense that you'll have to explain why the AI doesn't grow out and become visible. I mean, if we saw something visible in the universe, it could well be AIs that had eaten their original species, <laughs> but they would still be visible uh, and that would still be a puzzle if they didn't become visible. So now you have to say, ask yourself, okay, given any one civilization like ours, what are the various chances it goes down these different paths of say, choosing for some reason not to grow or creating a totalitarian limit that prevents anybody from growing or not having any interest in growing. And the fraction of the filter you can explain with that has to be how reliable is this process? So if 99% of the time a civilization like ours went to this point where it locked itself down and didn't do anything, then that could explain up to a factor of 10 to the 2 of the filter, not the whole 10 to the 22. So a only mildly reliable tendency of this sort can only explain a modest fraction of the filter. Though if we're at the 10 to the 20, that one explanation could explain the rest. Though I suppose if we were to look at it probabilistically, such a lockdown, you'd also have to look on what's its longevity, right? If we look at uh, social evolution, uh, we've never seen any lockdown that lasted longer than what was the uh, Middle Ages, Dark Ages, 1500 years or something, right? So we could say we lock someone, locks it down. What's the chances of it uh, lasting for cosmic time spans, which might be pretty damn low at almost any mutation rate? Life on Earth has been locked on Earth for the whole time, but that's not because any one part of it set up a law that said, no, the rest of you can't do that. It just no parts of the life on Earth could really do it. So now we're imagining a future where we have the technical capability to expand into the rest of the galaxy. And then some part of the society makes a rule and and a policy that prevents other parts from doing that. And that's the kind of star you have to be thinking. Even, you know, the vast majority of the civilization not being interested in going out doesn't do it. As long as there's any small part that does and is able to, then the puzzle is why hasn't that part happened? So if you were to place your bet on the uh, cosmic opinion marketplace on Fermi Paradox, uh, where do you come down? Well, if you look at the entire filter, clearly the parts that we understand the least are the earliest. (laughs) They're long ago or their data is very weak. So that's the easiest place to put big filter factors that don't contradict our evidence uh, is way back at the very beginning. And so that's a convenient place to put it because then that's in the past and that makes our future less problematic. So it's not a terrible scenario there. It's, it's not terribly depressing to say, well, it looks like the most likely place to filter is in, the, is in the distant past. And therefore, that's probably where it is. And therefore, our future is OK. The main problem is you just shouldn't be too confident of that. That's just a little too fast and easy. You should worry that, yeah, but part of the filter might be in the future and that any small fraction of the filter in the future is a big problem for your 
descendants and our civilization. So you should still worry about it and try to do what you can to prevent it, even if perhaps the most likely scenario is that it's all in the past, in the very distant past. And of course, if it turns out it's not in the past, then it means it's in the future, right? (laughs) And we will get some data on how much is in the past relatively soon as we start to be able to scan distant planets for their atmospheric constituents and things of that ilk. If we see any kind of life anywhere in the universe that's not at the zero dead stage, that gives us data about those early steps of the filter. And that limits how big those early steps can be. And so the more advanced life we find, the closer to us we find, the lower that initial filter can be, and therefore the higher the later filter kind of has to be, which is bad news. So it will be bad news to see advanced life away from Earth, especially the more plausible it is that it had an independent origin. One plausible story, though, is that life was very unlikely to evolve, but it evolved in the initial cluster of stars that was the nursery for our star. So our star didn't arise by itself. It arose at a nursery with several hundred stars all together in the same molecular cloud, because that's typically how these things happen. And so if that molecular cloud was a dense cloud where stuff traveled between different parts of the cloud, then it's plausible that even after our sun formed and life formed soon there, other parts of that cloud got the life together. And so the best place to see it in our galaxy for other life is the other siblings of our star. And they should be actually relatively easy to identify because they would have the same mix of elements as our star in terms of the various kinds of elements that would have been in the cloud. So we can find our few hundred siblings of our star out there. And if they have life around them, that speaks to the rest of the filter after that point, but not so much to the very first step. Yeah, it doesn't quite answer the cosmological question, right? Maybe it got lucky within the cluster on the early filter. Well, I suppose if they independently all developed their own life, the question was, was it independent or was it through some propagation of some early substrate? Right. But if they were from our siblings, that's almost certainly that there was propagation between us. But other stars out there that doesn't have a common origin, then it's much more plausible that it was farther back in the chain. Of course, that depends where the filter occurs, right? And when. I mean, if it turns out it was 4.5 billion years ago, then some form of contagion amongst them might make sense. But if it was three and a half billion years ago, the distances were getting mighty big uh, at that point. It might be uh, much less likely, though it could have been some precursors that were shared. There there was enough of the advanced hydrocarbons left over from the previous set of supernovas, for instance. So the highest level thing to realize is just there are reasons to be worried. (laughs) That is, you look in this dark night sky and everything looks dead, and that should worry you a bit. It should say something out there kills things (laughs) or prevents them ever from becoming alive in the first place. There's something really fierce and dark and dangerous out there. And of course, one of those scenarios is called the dark forest scenario, where the, you know there is a regular eruption of life, but there's some top predator that goes and eats them every time they show themselves. That's a great entertaining scenario, and it's worth thinking through. But over the years, I just can't make it work. <laughs> I just can't figure out how there's a plausible scenario where there's a dark power that's hiding and kills off anything that shows up without that dark power becoming visible itself. It's interesting. When I was a 12-year-old or 14-year-old nerd, I, of course, ran the Drake equation and said, oh, there's got to be hundreds of thousands of them. But the more I have looked at it in the last 10 years, I've really looked at the literature, I've become more and more, uh, put a little bit more weights, quite a lot more weights on early filters. For instance, as you mentioned, our working assumption is that uh, we have a evolutionary ratchet that improves over time and giving enough time ought to produce pretty amazing results. However, the mathematics of evolution require an error rate 
below X not to succumb to what's known as the error catastrophe. And we look at uh, how information could be duplicated in an early warm pool soup before we have something like our DNA architecture with its pretty heavy error checking and error repair capability. You run the numbers and you go, hmm, the evolutionary power of that pre-error corrected information is pretty damn low. Uh, so how did a low power ratchet without error correction, it was it able to generate our uh, high fidelity information ecosystem around DNA and all of its duplication, error detection and error correction components that has become my favorite early filter. No doubt there's a lot of earlier stages, even before the sort of life we're familiar with in just large pools of biochemicals selecting each other and, you know, selecting out some forms and emphasizing other forms, even if that's not a life, there could be a lot of processes there by which there's a slow, gradual accumulation of some kinds relative to others. The point would be, though, if if the error rate and the duplications of information between generations was, you know, above the error catastrophe level, the rate of evolution seems mighty slow and we probably have not had enough time. So the question is how quickly and by in what probability do we go from that uh, low power evolutionary machine with non-error corrected data to the high power evolutionary machine with error corrected DNA data and seems like a possible uh, early filter. And uh, I then go and say, if we do have a strong early filter, and you know that's one to my mind that seems plausible, then that has some very interesting moral implications. Uh, you know, this is something I would never have believed when I was a 14-year-old nerdy kid, right? Which is that we might actually be the first general intelligence in the universe, or at least in the galaxy. And one could argue that has some immense moral implications. The biggest implications come from being the only as opposed to the first. <laughs> if we're just the first, but others are coming, well, we kill ourselves off. The others will be there. If we're the only and likely to be only, well, now a lot more rides on our shoulders. And I would say that until we know, if we think we're the only 13.x billion years have gone by, and if we're the only at that point, it's not a bad place to start as a betting proposition that we'll be the only, at least for some reasonably very long period of time. And so we have a huge moral obligation to preserve this amazing thing, life in the universe. And maybe we can state the mission of humanity is to bring the universe to life, at least until we have some evidence that there is other advanced life in the universe or life in the universe. And then we get the hard question of, okay, how exactly can we do that? (laughs) How exactly can we ensure this big growth? You know, some people's first reaction is, well, we need to make new independent variations like a colony on Mars or something. Although it's probably a lot easier to make independent colonies deep under the Earth's surface than putting them on Mars. And so maybe we should be making a lot more independent colonies under the Earth's surface. Uh, But they aren't that independent in the sense that if there's a war or something, we know where they are, then they'll kind of be recruited into the war. And so uh, there's a sense in which as long as we're part of this big integrated society, we are all one big variation that'll have to continue because we can all find all the parts of us. (laughs) And then the question is, well, if we're all one thing, should we try to go faster or slower? So some people say if we go too fast, we're going to run into these problems and we're better off to slow down so we can research and understand these problems better. And another point of view is that uh, there's just problems that show up at somewhat independent rates. And the faster we can run past all these obstacles, the better off we'll be. And, you know, these are hard questions. Yep. And of course, there's another possibility for spreading life to the universe is uh, not to spread intelligent life, but to essentially do a human engineered panspermia. 
create a, a massive payload of uh, viruses, bacteria, precursor chemicals, et cetera, and dispatch them to stars that based on uh, analysis of uh, the atmosphere of the planets uh, look like hmm, maybe reasonable precursors and do that you know, a billion times over the next million years. That might be what we come up to as our moral answer to our duty if it turns out we're the only, and as far as we know, uh, the only for all time. My bet would be that that's worth doing. But as you can see, there's a lot of social inertia or feeling on the other side. That is, they feel like if there's life out there and we send something out that kills it, then this is a murder that we're destroying the other life out there. But, you know, under the scenario where there's murder, it's a pretty optimistic scenario, i.e. there's a bunch of things out there to kill, i.e. there's lots of life. The more pessimistic scenario is that uh, there's almost nothing there. So there's very few things you could kill, which means then you'd be basically ensuring more variation, which would be good. I guess it's somewhat related to the Medi dispute where some people want to send signals to aliens uh, in the hope that those aliens could come help us and be nice. And other people go, well, wait a minute. <laughs> what if they're not nice? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> where do you think on, on that one? Where's your position on Medi? Almost surely uh, we would be one of the youngest, weakest, most primitive civilizations around. If, if civilizations are communicating on a cosmic scale, they would almost all be much older than we are. So it's the question of, do you really want to uh, stick your neck out being the youngest, most naive, weakest member of this community? We have a lot to gain, but we have a, have a lot to lose, right, by being the weakest. You know, my sense is that when you're the new kid in a company, you're usually best to keep your mouth shut for a while and see what's going on. If you have the ability to go, you know, make a speaker Few light, a few hundred light years away somewhere else and make it be loud and then watch what happens to it. <laughs> that would be the safest approach. Yeah, that might, that would, I would be tolerably in favor of that one. Big loudspeaker a hundred light years away and with no way to trace it to us. I like it. But making sure there's no way to trace it to us would be really hard because you don't know all the different detection capabilities they have. It also may turn out that the nearest 200 light years may be close enough too close. Yeah, they just kill everything within 300 light years. Exactly. Anyway, this has been a wonderful conversation. Let's move on to our next topic. And this is actually what uh, caused me to reach out to you and ask you to be a guest on the show, which is I uh, very recently read uh, The Elephant in the Brain and was quite taken with it. Uh, and that's a book that you co-wrote with uh, a guy named Kevin Simler. Yeah, he's a great, great co-author. And uh, the book is much easier to read uh, and um, you know, more accessible because of my co-author. You can compare it to Age of M and you can see the difference. For me, this is an attempt near the end of my career to summarize a key point that I wish I had known at the beginning and that hopefully new generations of social scientists won't make the same mistakes I and others of my generation did because we didn't know the one key fact of this book. And so the, the key story is that in social science, and in policy, we typically analyze something like education or medicine or even marriage from the point of view that we basically know what people are trying to do, their basic goal or motive with respect to this thing. And then that there's a lot of complications in how to get that and that policy can help you figure out how to get this thing that obviously is the thing you're trying to get. So in education, we'd say the thing you're trying to get is to learn more material faster. And then education policy is all about how to reorganize schools or school funding or ratings such that we can induce more material to be learned faster. Or you would say medicine is obviously about taking six people and getting them well. And medical policy and medical reform and medical funding and institutions are all about figuring out better ways to get more people well or faster at a lower cost. And this is what we do over and over again through our society. We, we 
in each area of life, we have this easy assumption of what something is for. And then we build on that to analyze how we can do it better. And the claim of the book is that through an awful lot of these areas, the standard key assumption is just wrong. Schools are not about learning more material faster. Medicine is not about making sick people well. That is at some level, it's kind of about that. It it has some degree of functioning that way, but that's not really the key strongest motive that's driving these institutions and behaviors. And so if you miss the key thing that something is for, you're just going to be misdirected right from the start. So we have a long history in education research of finding many powerful ways to help people learn more material faster. We actually know a lot about that. And we found many ways that existing schools could, in fact, teach more material faster, more effectively, at lower cost, et cetera. And we've consistently not adopted these reforms. And that's got to be pretty frustrating for education researchers and reformers who've known for many decades how we could do things better. Same in medicine. We know lots of ways that medicine can be more effective. People are not very interested in these ways. And again, that's got to frustrate medical reformers and social scientists. And the key claim of the book is, well, the big mistake everybody's been making is assuming you know what these things are for. So our book starts out trying to make it plausible that you would just be wrong a lot about why you want to do things that you are not aware of your motives. So our book has been classified as psychology and it had psychology referees and psychology reviewers. And these psychologists have all said, yes, this is a standard thing we know in psychology. People are quite often unaware of their motives for doing things. But they've said, we already knew that, so who cares? But in all of these other policy areas like education and medicine, et cetera, these people don't know this. And so our book is addressed to them trying to say, you've been missing the point. This thing these psychologists all know hasn't transferred into your social science and policy worlds. And you aren't appreciating that, in fact, you're making mistaken assumptions about the key driving motives in these areas. So we we want our book to be read by social science and policy world. But unfortunately, because it's been classified as psychology, they don't see that it's something they need to read or respond to. Yeah, I I did notice that actually most of the piece parts from which you built the theory were things other people had discovered. And I think you actually said that in the introduction, that you had gone through a large amount of research and found things that were known. Uh, But what was I found new was that you integrated it to show that this is a very consistent pattern. And you also teased out uh, at least some quite good arguments, I thought, for why it actually makes sense for humans' brains to evolve themselves this way. And a lot of it comes around things like arms races. Uh, One of the ones I liked a lot was the social brain hypothesis or that, you know, what actually drove the rapid mega growth of the human brain was the ability to be Machiavellian within our uh, within our own uh, small groups. Uh, Or uh, as Trivers put it, uh, we deceive ourselves the better to deceive others. Right. Uh, And so uh, I thought that was really where you guys delivered, where you pulled together these various piece parts and then also found the pieces that explained all the piece parts together. We're doing some degree of synthesis, but again, I think a lot of people in this area correctly would say, well, they kind of already understood that synthesis, even if we're doing an especially good job, say, of explaining it to a wide audience. Uh, What's new, I would say, is that we are trying to tell people in these other policy areas that they have neglected this key insight. And so there is this basic problem in our academic intellectual world that we assume that once something is known by the experts in that area, it's known by everybody and included by everybody in their analysis. And that's just not true. There are a great many things that are known in one subfield that are completely neglected in lots of other areas where it's relevant. 
Yeah, that's clearly been true. I happened to have done a little dive into the move from educational psychology to uh, education departments at universities. And it's like 50 year lag. It's pretty amazing. Our thing may also suffer a lag because there's also lags for things people don't want to hear. <laughs> so in the, you know, in the history of innovation and intellectual progress, things that people want to hear, or at least that don't conflict with something they want to believe are easier to assimilate and spread the things that people just don't want to hear that go against what they want to believe. Yeah, one of those that came up again and again, as I, particularly in your applied chapters, was that so much of human behavior can be thought of in terms of signaling as opposed to substance. Right. So the key general idea is that when we are trying to attribute motives to our behavior, we are mostly acting as a PR person or press agent for ourselves. That is, instead of knowing what we actually are doing, we're more like the president's press secretary who is trying to make up good explanations for what we're doing in order to present a good face to the world. So we're looking for explanations that defend us well against potential accusations and the explanations we come up with do achieve that function. Uh, they're just not really designed to be accurate representations of the real motives that are driving us because the real motives tend to be less pretty and more socially dysfunctional and more open to the accusation that we're violating social norms of being selfish and self-serving, which we are. Uh, and therefore, we look for more pro-social, good-looking motives to attribute to ourselves. Certainly seems to be the case. <laughs> the section on uh, medicine was particularly interesting. Could you maybe talk about that a little bit? Sure. So that's, for many of our readers, perhaps the most surprising chapter in each chapter in the last two thirds of the book, the 10 different areas, what we do is we say, here is the topic we're talking about. And here is the standard motive most people would point to. And then here are a bunch of puzzles with that, things that don't fit so well with the standard motive. And then we finish with an explanation, a motive that fits better with uh, many of the details of that area. So as we said before, the usual story about medicine is that Hey, you can get sick, but there's these experts out there who could help get you well. These experts are expensive and they uh, are hard to judge who's good. But hey, we need a system to help you get their expertise to help you get well. And this basic story is the story we usually tell. And uh, it doesn't fit that well with a number of actual details of this area. And perhaps the most prominent one is the fact that there's very little correlation between people who get more medicine and people who get healthier. We have not only geographic variation where we look at some regions or hospital areas and see the ones that spend more on medicine are not healthier, even after we control for some other things. We also have a number of randomized experiments where people were randomly given more access to medicine, such as through a cheaper price, and they weren't healthier. That's a big puzzle from the point of view that the whole point of medicine is to spend a lot of money to get healthy. Uh, but we have a number of other puzzles in this area that people say are not very interested in ways to improve their health via, say, sleep or nutrition or air quality or exercise compared to medicine. They are really obsessed with medicine, even though we see very little connection between medicine and health and much larger connections between health and these other areas. And they're cheaper, right? Getting an extra hour of sleep costs a hell of a lot less than you know, some expensive course of mental health uh, intervention, right? People are also remarkably uninterested in information about the quality of medicine. Uh, they just won't bother to pay for it. They won't look at it. They just want to take a simple strategy of trusting their doctor or surgeon and uh, not thinking about it. How do you explain those behaviors in terms of your theory? An analogy is Valentine's chocolates. Uh, we have a tradition here on Valentine's Day of giving your lover chocolates. And the idea is that you show that you love them with the chocolates. Now, when you do that, 
you don't ask how hungry they are when you decide how many chocolates to get. <laughs> the point isn't how hungry they are. The point is how much do you need to spend to distinguish yourself from somebody who doesn't care as much as you? You need to spend a lot. And when you ask what quality chocolates should I get, you're not that interested in what you privately think is the highest quality chocolate. And you're not that interested as a recipient of the chocolate in what you privately think is the quality of the chocolate. You're interested in commonly perceived signals. What do most people think is the high quality chocolate? And if on Valentine's Day, you don't have a lover to give you chocolate, but you'd like people to believe that somebody out there cared for you, you might buy yourself some chocolate and leave it on the desk at work. Okay. How does that work on an individual basis? I could see how it might work with respect to a parent purchasing medical interventions for a child. But let's take the case we talked about in passing of a person who could choose either to sleep one hour a night or spend uh, $200 a week talking to their shrink. Uh, There is nobody they're trying to impress, really. So, So first to make the point, most medical spending is done via third parties. Nations buy medicine for their citizens, companies buy medicine for their employees, heads of family buy medicine for the rest of their family. But they pay, they don't buy. It's an interesting distinction between the payer and the buyer, right? It's always good to find a business where you can decouple the paying and the buying. College textbooks being a perfect example, by the way. But uh, in this case, the actual decision to pull the trigger, right, to say, I'm going to go to see a shrink weekly rather than sleep an hour is an actual decision made by an individual agent. With the price greatly reduced because other people paying for it, as you say. So these other people fund the bill. They say, don't worry about it. When you feel like you have a problem, just go to the doctor and it'll be paid for by this other source. And that other source is part of the process to show they care. So they are definitely achieving the benefit of reassuring people that they care about them through that spending, even though they're not choosing each individual doctor visit. Uh, Then the individual person, when they have a problem, they have a choice of whether to go or not, but often they're getting pushed. So you you may know couples where one member of the couple pushes the other to get a checkup, to get something checked out, et cetera. There's a lot of that in family areas where individual people show they care about other people by pushing them to go get care. And then you as the person who is the subject to these other people subsidizing you and pushing you, you often want to be a good sport, (laughs) cooperate and let those people show they care about you by taking care of you. And you want to feel that. So. And so the signaling is then at the macro level, you could argue that society together says we're going to show we care by allocating 17 percent of the GDP to medicine. But uh, an adult typically makes their own decision on what medical treatments to go after. People do initiate whether they have any particular doctor visit or whether they buy any particular medicine. Uh, That's at their choice, but it's mainly funded by other people who have enabled that, who said, don't worry about the cost, just go. And uh, in addition, we push people and people seem to want to get and get credit for being caring by pushing other people to go. So now you, as somebody who has people around you pushing to go to the doctor, you show them that You care about them by letting them show they care about you by accommodating them and going when they push and spending the money that they have allocated for you to spend, which then shows them and everybody around that you are loved and cared for by somebody who is willing to pay for this. And do you have a a rough estimate on uh, what percentage of uh, medical care, let's say in the United States, uh, you might consider to be above and beyond medical usefulness that are generated by these signaling behaviors? Most likely more than half. That's a big damn number. (laughs) Bigger than almost anything else in the economy, right? So the advice to you is if you only wanted 
to get your health higher, but you didn't care about these other signaling benefits, then I'd say, cut out half of your medicine. And of course, you might say, which half? And I'd say, well, there are some simple ways to do that. So in the uh, health insurance experiments we've seen where people had uh, randomly assigned more medicine, we see they weren't any healthier when they were given a lower price. So that method says that you should look at the price and say, if I had to pay for this out of my pocket, if I had to pay full price for this, would I be willing to pay for it? And then if you wouldn't, don't bother to get it <laughs> because that's the kind of medicine that in these experiments wasn't useful. Uh, another way to do it is there are these various studies out there. The Cochrane reports is one where they take different treatments and they rate them according to the strength of evidence that they are useful and cost effective. So you can just drop lower half of the ratings. That would be another way to drop half of your medicine. So I'd say you can safely be about as healthy with spending a lot less money and time and trouble by just dropping the lower half of medicine according to either of these two ways to rate it. Very interesting. Let's go on to another one. Politics. People are especially sensitive about politics. <laughs> it's especially emotional and they've got a lot invested in this. Well, actually, some people are. So in all the different 10 areas we discuss, people vary a lot about how central those things are to their identity. So for many of you, medicine is not central to your identity and you were fine with what I just said in the last few minutes. And for others of you, medicine was central to your identity and you're very skeptical. It's really important to you to believe that medicine is effective. Similarly, in politics, some of you don't care much about politics. You're kind of cynical or skeptical about it. And what I'm about to say will sound fine. And others of you will be much more skeptical because politics is really important to you. So uh, the usual story about politics is that you get involved with politics, you read about it, you talk about it because you are helping. You are a Dudley do-right. You are making contributions to your society by thinking carefully about the better political positions, the better politicians, et cetera, and then making good choices that will benefit all of us. Good for you. <laughs> That's the usual story people want to give to explain their political behavior. And that story just doesn't fit with a lot of details about people's political behavior. For one thing, you are just way too emotional and very uninformed about most political opinions you have. People seem quite free to have political opinions they haven't researched much at all, and they seem very confident of them, uh, even though um, these things are usually pretty complicated. And there's a number of other puzzles that just don't fit with uh, the usual story. So if, for example, you really cared about producing good political outcomes, you would want, say, to pick politicians who were good operatives, who knew how to work the machine behind the scenes. They could craft bills and negotiate deals. And you'd want somebody who was good at all of that. And you wouldn't care so much about what public positions they took. And you wouldn't necessarily want them to take extreme positions that would limit their ability to make deals. You'd want them to be good at making deals. Uh, but in fact, people seem to care mostly about the positions politicians take, and they don't care much about whether they're good at actually making things happen. They want politicians who share their positions. And of course, politicians are happy to supply that, but it calls into question the idea that what you really want to do is produce more effective policy. And there's a number of other puzzles we go into. We say the better explanation here is that what you want to do is show your support for your political allies. There's your team, and you want to say, yay, us team, and I'm with you. And most of what people do actually does a pretty good job of that. People are very effective at that. And that's, in some sense, much more plausible about something you would actually care about in the sense that the people around you do look at you and interpret you in terms of a political lens. They ask, whose side are you on and are you loyal? And that affects whether they want to relate to you. So people seem to care a lot about whether their spouses and lovers share their political views, about whether 
people at school do, whether people on the job do. Uh, this matters a lot to people and it's a strong selection effect on people, whether they you know, have the political views that the people around them like. So that's all very plausible. But of course, it means that uh, our political system isn't designed or necessarily doing a very good job of producing good policies. It's allowing a lot of people to take sides and to show loyalty to their sides. Now, this is an area I've done a little bit of thinking in, and I would say call my perspective a more institutional one, and that the behaviors you say, you see, in fact, in my own writings on this, I just refer to the two teams as uh, Team Red and Team Blue to make them seem as much like football teams as anything else, because that's certainly how the behaviors come about. My argument, though, is that isn't necessarily driven by human nature or culture, but rather uh, by the institutional design of our political system. In the case of the United States, uh, we have one of the strongest uh, set of constitutional and traditional uh, settings to produce a two-team dynamic. We have a single-member election districts with first-past-the-post, usually plurality uh, wins. And then we also have a congressional system where control is by one party, typically in one house, which argues strongly for very strong coalitions or very strong parties to win a majority so that they can control the House of Congress. And I look at that and I've looked at another institutional design, which I think think could address that and produce a very different result, which is uh, liquid democracy, also known as delegative democracy, uh, where there aren't any teams. Essentially, each voter allocates their vote to people who represent them. And in my version of liquid democracy, uh, that vote is divided up into something like 25 issue areas like defense and economy, healthcare, education. And so let's say I'm uh, Mary voter and I give my uh, education uh, vote to my sister who's a teacher and to my uh, uncle who's a retired lieutenant for defense, a retired lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, uh, etc. And I've taken my vote and pushed it to people who probably are more knowledgeable than I am uh, in the domain. And uh, nowhere does that get aggregated into a team. Rather, each issue that gets floated by a person, an, an initiation of legislation, gets voted on by these proxies without any intermediation. Uh, and so we don't have the institutional dynamic that we see in our system. So, so in our book, in all of these areas, we are first just trying to look at broad averages of human behavior across a wide range of space and times. So, for example, in medicine, there are some different things about the United States versus the rest of the world, but we're not focused on that. We're not trying to explain why is the United States different. We're trying to say, why is medicine everywhere at all times has certain common characteristics? So I'd say the same about politics. We're mainly trying to look at the common features of politics across a wide range of contexts. And for example, in your church, in your firm, in your family, there is politics. We talk about office politics, for example. And uh, these other political arenas have a lot of the similar sorts of features and effects. And so it's less trying to focus on the United States today in the, in the year 2019 uh, or even all democracies, there's going to be variations based on institutions, as you say, and lots of other context. But our first priority is just try to look at the very basic overall patterns. And so we're usually immersed in a variety of context and our politics varies by context. And we often try to some degree to integrate them, but at a lower cost. So for example, in your firm, there's going to be different factions and you'll be aligned with some faction. And then in a meeting, you might try to promote your faction in that meeting, and that would be politics. Often, the main thing you're trying to do is make sure other people in your faction know that you are still with them and supporting their faction. 
Now, in many firms, the, the main division is between, you know, the top and the bottom. <laughs> and then you might be trying to say, I'm not rebelling against the top. I'm with the top. I'm loyal. And uh, that would be the main thing you were trying to show. It will be less one faction against another than there's the dominant powers and you're trying to show your submission to them. And so, you know, similarly in your church, there might be factions or there might be one dominant coalition uh, in your family. Uh, but we still have politics in all these contexts in the sense that we take positions, we express opinions on what would be good policies, who should be in charge. And again, in a lot of these contexts, we seem much more interested in the public appearance of being loyal to some sides than we care about actually making good choices. That makes a lot of sense. Anything else you want to add about uh, uh, the book before we move on to our last topic? Well, the, um, the key message of our book for people who want to do institution design or improving the world is to say the problem is a little harder than you might have thought, but there's a better prospect that if you solve this harder problem, you'll actually get some traction. So today, for example, if you try to solve the education problem in the form of how can we get more students to learn more material faster, you'll find that we actually have a lot of solutions and we can identify them, but nobody cares. <laughs> but if school is really about showing that you are smart and conscientious and conformist and things like that, then you might have a better chance if you found a solution that let people show those things more effectively than they would be actually interested. Although they're going to want to continue to pretend to want to show that they're learning the material. So because we are hypocritical, because in each of these areas, we have one thing we say we're trying to do and another thing we actually are trying to do, Reforms will also have to be hypocritical in that they will have to continue to let us pretend that we are trying to achieve the thing we are pretending to achieve, but actually give us more of the things we really want so that we will actually be interested in adopting them. So that's the different perspective that I'm hoping to pass on to social scientists and policymakers from my lifetime of experience, which is if you reform the question that way, you'll have a better chance of actually producing reforms that people want. Okay, that uh, makes a heck of a lot of sense, actually, uh, though it does bring something pretty close to cynicism into the design of our institutions. The, the fact that there's a nominal reason, learn something, and then there's a real reason, show that you're smart, right? Right, and it makes a plausible reason why you can't be fully honest about why you are proposing something. And so it means that you can easily, if other people are doing this, you can accuse them of hypocrisy, which is a terrible accusation usually, and people will try to deny it and... They can accuse you of hypocrisy because if this is what you're doing, you actually are being hypocritical in some sense because ordinary people are hypocritical and you're trying to accommodate them. Unfortunately, that seems to give rise to a defense mechanism within the system for inefficiency, right? If to actually address the reality immediately produces a reaction from the other side of hypocrisy, it then becomes difficult to nudge the system towards reality. So the first thing to realize is all of these different systems are chock full of enormous waste. <laughs> From the point of view of the thing we say we're trying to achieve, there's a vast potential for doing better and a vast unacknowledged and unused you know, potential. So it's far easier to figure out how to produce policies that would make things better than it is to get people to be interested in adopting them. So the more fundamental problem in the world isn't how can we have a better world, but is how can we make anybody care about having a better world? Yeah, it seems to be the split is the reality of what they say they want is different from how they'll actually behave. And unfortunately, if you move the, try to move the system towards how they'll actually behave, you're immediately subject to the charge of hypocrisy because you have deviated from the uh, stated social norm. 
Which is what happens if you admit your actual reason for making those proposals. So, and then you have to have an, another level of strategy, right? Which is here's the reason, but we have a different, here's the proposal, but here's the reason, which isn't the real reason, right? Right now, most people who are involved in politics and policy and social science know that, in fact, this is what actually typically happens. Most people who are making policy proposals do have hidden agendas and aren't willing to be fully honest about why they're making those proposals. They know that's true about pretty much everybody and which they know that it's true about the other side. They focus on the other side and they know that those other people are hypocrites, which all the more emboldens them to be outraged and indignant about the other side. Well, it's always good to know how a system works, but I must say I don't take a tremendous amount of uh, optimism about our current political process away from uh, this knowledge. So, Well, but what it means is enormous potential is there for improvement. If the system was really well optimized, it would mean we couldn't do much better. When the system is really broken, it means there's huge potential for improvement. That is true. But one of the best jobs I ever took was a, a really messed up company. People said, why'd you do that? And I said, it's actually uh, a lot easier to fix a messed up company than it is to build a good one. Or to improve a good one. Yeah, or to improve a good one. All right. Well, let's move on to our last topic. This has been such a great conversation. And that is a article you put on your blog not too long ago about publishing tax returns. That wasn't uh, just a, a relatively small thought I had. It wasn't central to my thinking, but I basically said, why not publish tax returns as a way to make it easier to enforce tax law? Uh, so if you're worried that people are cheating on their taxes, the more visible the taxes are, then the more other people who, say, saw their neighbor and how much tax they were paying and could look at the items would then be able to check that against uh, what they saw and maybe call bullshit when something didn't look right. Uh, so in some sense, there's a trade-off there between privacy, how much you're going to allow each person to keep their taxes private, and our enforcement of tax law. Uh, what about other implications? I read that and saw you had a, a relatively narrow argument, but it immediately got me thinking, you know, what about things like, for instance, how much charity people would do if their tax returns were public? Uh, and especially going back to your idea of signaling, right? Uh, if our tax returns were public, we might behave in different ways. Sure. Now, it does come to this basic question of to what extent do you see social pressure and social visibility as good? Overall, humans clearly evolved a system by which we have social visibility and social pressure in order to induce better behavior. This is the whole concept of social norms. Long ago, we didn't have formal systems of law. What we had is norms. And the rules were, if you saw somebody breaking a norm, breaking a rule, then you were supposed to tell everybody, other people about it report on it, then you were supposed to talk to them and coordinate with them about what to do about it, which included threats of punishment, punishment, uh, and escalations to continue to do something to get it to stop. That is our ancient human heritage, to have norms that we enforce in that way. Uh, it's only in the last few 10,000 years that we've had formal systems of law that did anything else than that. And mostly formal systems of law are trying to more strongly and accurately enforce these norms that we've developed before. So if you approve of this general norm-based system, then you like the idea that you could make behavior more visible, which would then make other people be able to shame you or disapprove if they were violating a norm and then exert more pressure on you to behave better. Now, many people have come to the opinion lately that norm enforcement is bad, that uh, we should not be having norms enforced, that we should instead create a system where people can do things privately in ways that are not visible, and that that's a better world where other people are not getting involved in their business. And so if true, that means that norms have gone really wrong somehow. 
somehow once upon a time norms were effective and useful and now norms are just broken. And of course, often people want to make a norm about that. <laughs> that is, they create and enforce a norm that you shouldn't have other norms or that certain norms are inappropriate. That's part of the modern world discussion is, is when it would be okay to have norms. A lot of research has been done, including some mathematical simulations by some folks at our Santa Fe Institute, indicate that it's really hard to have norms survive without enforcement. Absolutely. So you're not going to have norms be followed if they aren't enforced. <laughs> and so the key question is, do you want norms being followed? There have been norms in societies in the past that people have disapproved of those particular norms. For example, there have been norms against homosexuality, and those norms were enforced, and people today have come to the opinion that those were bad norms and it was bad to enforce them. And then they jump from that to the idea that it would be bad to enforce all norms. <laughs> it's related to the uh, issue of blackmail, actually, which is a fun topic that I've talked on the blog a couple times in the last year, because arguably blackmail is a way to enforce norms. That is, if there's a thing that if it were known, you wouldn't like it to be known because people would treat you worse. Blackmail induces the threat of making that be known and punishes you for behaving in ways that uh, that threat would be effective. So in some sense, when you allow blackmail, you allow people to enforce the norms against whatever behavior you would do that would you wouldn't like to be known. And then many people think, well, that's bad. It's bad to have blackmail because it's bad to enforce those norms, uh, such as, for example, homosexuality in the past. Gotcha. Uh, though we then we get to an issue that if we have uh, a nihilism about norms or a nihilism about enforcement, we've essentially said we've abandoned all of our norms. Right. So some people say, well, now that we have law, we don't need norms anymore. <laughs> Although then, then they have norms about which laws we should have. And of course, norms about which laws should be enforced. So, for example, the recent Me Too discussion is about a norm against behavior not only behavior, some of which is illegal, but they want the norm to be enforced that more sorts of behavior like that should be illegal. And even when it's not illegal, it should be disapproved. And that's an attempt to use norms to enforce concept of good behavior and bad behavior. And it you know, makes sense if we agree that that is bad behavior, which I certainly would agree. So an especially important thing is that we've seemed to have weakened our norms for supporting law. You know, in the past, there usually were strong norms in any given geographic area that if you saw illegal behavior, you should report it and you should assist in reporting and preventing and inducing the formal law enforcement apparatus to come to play. And more recently, we often have communities where in the local community's norms, there's no particular thing you're supposed to do when you see illegal behavior. It's up to the police to find it and catch it, but you're not supposed to help. There's no obligation you have to help. And in fact, often you feel you have an obligation to not help because you see the police, for example, as an outside occupying force that are not supporting your community. So when you don't have a norm of supporting law, law is, of course, much weaker and much less effective. And so then you might not have norms or laws. Presumably you'll have a uh, much less strong society, right? Your coherence as a society will be substantially weakened. But again, from the usual broadest perspective, we say, you know, norms and then law were an important tools that societies had for discouraging bad behavior and producing better behavior. Uh, but from some perspectives, they say, well, that may have been once been true, but it isn't true now. And therefore, they say norms are now just things better off, not enforced. And even many of them think laws are things better off, not enforced. There's even a contingent of people who think a stronger law enforcement is a bad idea because we have so many bad laws that enforcing the law is bad. And, you know, if that's true, that means we have a pretty desperate, sad situation that we no longer have norms or laws available to us as a way to enforce good behavior because there's a lot of bad behavior that's possible and that might well grow if it isn't discouraged.
Yeah, from any uh, evolutionary game theory perspective, we know that uh, systems are easily invadable by free riders and by other kinds of malicious strategies uh, again and again, and work by guys like Sam Bowles and Herb Gintis on some of these simple social exchange games uh, show that without the ability to enforce norms, uh, there's a large tendency for people to retreat to uh, a series of uh, far from optimal strategies. So I've been especially interested lately in ways to reform criminal law enforcement and punishment exactly because if you assume that on average criminal law is a good idea, then on average it would be good to be more effective at enforcing that. And arguably our current system is pretty awkward and inefficient at doing those sorts of things and unfair in many ways. But that, that is all based on the idea that it's better to have criminal law than not to have it. And the same is true for norm enforcement. Blackmail is good if the typical norms that would be enforced by blackmail are good, but not otherwise. Uh, what are some of the ideas in the criminal justice area? Well, I've got this package that it's kind of radical, but I'm even thinking of writing a book on it to combine a bounty insured fine system to uh, basically privatize the punishment and enforcement of crime, but still have the same social choice of what is a crime and whether anyone acts as a crime. So the bounds of the proposals will leave in place whatever systems we have for deciding which acts are crimes and how how severe any one act is as a crime in terms of a type of act. And then whether there's an accusation about any one person having committed one of these acts, uh, leave alone the process for deciding whether that accusation is correct. Okay, so for instance, we let's say we still have our, uh, a, a law against armed robbery, and we want a pretty strong sanction on it. Uh, would we put a bounty on uh, people who apprehend armed robbers? So we put two numbers on each crime. So say armed robbery of a certain sort. So we, we could vary armed robbery, say whether it was you know violent or nonviolent with a gun or not. You could vary the punishment for different versions of armed robbery, but for whichever version you're talking about, society would put two numbers on that crime. It would put a bounty, i.e. how hard should people try to catch it? And we'll put a fine, which is how much should it be punished when it's caught? And those would be the two key numbers that would the society would decide about each crime. And now there'd be a private system by which, say, a bounty hunter would go look for evidence to accuse any one person and then go to court and try to convince a court of that. And then if they convince the court, they will receive a certain bounty. And then that person will suffer a certain fine. Now, in the past, we've tended not to use fines for big crimes because most people can't pay really big fines. So the innovation here is to make it more like our system for automobile insurance. So today, you're not allowed to drive on the road unless you have insurance that covers for an accident. And so the idea would be to do that for everything. (laughs) Crime insurance for everything, uh, or even lawsuit insurance for everything. You must have an insurer who backs you to a large amount, say the 90th percentile of awards, Uh, such that if you are found guilty of that, they will pay this amount on your behalf. And if we can do that, now you and your insurer internalize the issues of how to punish, how to monitor, how much freedoms you should have, and even how much to help with crime detection. You and your insurer make those choices and the rest of us don't have to get involved. So today in our system of crime, because it's this centrally run system, We all have to get involved in deciding which kind of traffic stops are justified, which kind of prison treatment is cruel and unusual, whether torture is okay, whether the government should be able to get your emails under certain subpoenas, et cetera. We all have to make all of these central choices in a centrally bureaucratic way, which is not very well attuned to individual variation. 
So now under this alternative system, once you've got an insurance company that agrees to pay for your crimes, you and your insurance company decide what happens to you if, if you're guilty of something. You can agree to torture, you can agree to prison, you can agree to exile. Uh, you can also agree ahead of time to limit your freedoms. You can agree to curfew, you can agree to ankle bracelets, you can agree to places you're not allowed to go, you can agree to letting people read your emails. You choose your freedoms and your punishment. And that, of course, will affect your insurance premiums. <laughs> the insurance company will offer you a lower premiums on your crime insurance if you are willing to accept fewer freedoms or more limits on your behavior or stronger punishments should you be caught. But that's up to you now. The rest of us don't have to get involved. So it's a, uh, an insurance mandate, kind of an ACA for crime insurance. Just like we do for cars now. Exactly. And so, and like some people are proposing to do for guns in the moment. So, you know, people who don't like guns in the moment are saying, hey, you should have to get gun insurance if you buy a gun. Well, that's another damn good idea. Well, Robin, this has been amazing, even better than I thought it would be. But I think the time has come for us to wrap up. And uh, any final words, any final thoughts? It's been fun chatting with you. And I'm happy to have been able to talk about all these different subjects with you. Very good. Uh, look forward to talking to you in the future. <laughs> 